What I think makes me a good coach and a good manager and a good leader is that I try to be egoless in my coaching. Hello, friends. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and I'm so glad you're here. On this show, I talk with people living meaningful lives, people who give a damn. If you love this show, hit subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. It would mean the world to me. Now, friends, my guest today is the incredible Craig Robinson. Our mutual friend, Joey Jenkins, introduced us a few weeks ago, and I'm so glad he did because Craig is a damn good human. Craig was born in Chicago to Frazier and Marion Robinson, and you may know his only sibling and younger sister, Michelle. Michelle Obama, that is. Craig played basketball at Princeton and went on to play professional ball overseas. He then entered the world of finance, but eventually came back to basketball as a coach. He coached at Brown in Oregon State for well over a decade. His career as a coach is truly remarkable. He's also been an on-air basketball analyst and broadcaster. About a decade ago, Craig wrote a fantastic memoir called A Game of Character. I hope you all grab a copy. It's a fantastic read. And there are two things I want you to watch after this podcast, of course, that will help you learn more about Craig and Michelle's relationship and friendship, because I, for one, find it fascinating. Number one, go watch Becoming on Netflix. Craig shows up several times in that documentary. It's so good. And number two, go to YouTube and find an hour-long conversation between Michelle and Craig, moderated by the wonderful Isabel Wilkerson. Now, during this conversation, Craig and I talk about his fascinating family, his amazing career, what it's like to be brother to one of the most famous and recognizable women and families in the world. We also spend a few minutes talking about his first encounter with the police when he was a boy, the Black Lives Matter movement, and what we need to do and can do as a country to move forward. You're going to love Craig, so how about I shut up now so we can begin? But before I jump into this conversation, before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with the delightful and inspiring Craig Robinson. Let's go. Craig Robinson, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Well, thanks, Nick. I'm happy to be here and, and and excited to be have a chance to talk to you in depth now. Yes, we yes we did a little chit chat back and forth, but man, I have so many things that I want to dive into. I'm so I'm so grateful oh, that you have given you know me some time here. So I'm I'm ready to dive right in. You know, okay. First of all, I wish we were doing this in person for a lot of reasons, but one of them is so we could see you know, on camera, your beautiful towering, you know, presence. I, I'm a, I'm an average, you know, I'm an average dude, you know, five foot, 10 and a half inches. You're six, six, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day when I was playing, I could, I could claim six, seven because I was really six, six and a half closer to six, seven. And if I had my shoes on, I was a legit six, seven, but as you get older, you start to shrink. So, uh, I'm trying to be truthful with myself now that my kids are getting into the game. 
I'm I'm really a, a I'm a I'm a an honest six six. An honest six six. Well, I usually say five eleven for me, and today I decided to be really truthful, and I'm five <laughs> ten and a half. Um, and I guess that. Well, here let me give you let let me give you a secret. In 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 when you're scouting players, anybody who says they're five eleven, you know they're not five eleven because if anybody was five eleven, they would say they were six feet. Ooh, so five eleven is a give is it, it gives away the fact that you're really five nine. Well, I I I don't think I'm five nine. You know what? I I because I'm so average. I don't like. It's probably been years since I've actually looked at how tall I am. Who knows? Right. The point being, um, I would love for people to see the comparison between you and me. Um, six six. That's that's amazing. How? Where are you? Where do you live? So we live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and, and I'm from Chicago originally, and we live in, in, in a suburb north of Milwaukee, and uh, we ended up here because I spent a couple of years working for the Milwaukee Bucks, and then I got a job in, uh, uh, with the New York Knicks, and we, and we realized that working in the NBA, there was so much travel, it didn't make sense to move the family out to New York, and I wouldn't be around, so they stayed here and this was this has been kind of our home base for the last oh almost 6 years now how do you like it we'll we'll get to chicago in a minute but you know uh yeah milwaukee wisconsin how how is it i mean you decided to stay so it can't be that bad yeah you know what what it what what, what we found nick is that we like where we all can be you know we've we've been fortunate we've lived a lot of places you know we've lived in chicago we've lived in new jersey we've lived in corvallis oregon and providence rhode island and we even spent some time in reston virginia the last days of my uh my in, my my brother-in-law and my sister's um time in the white house so what we found is we like we, we think we can live anywhere as long as we're together. And uh, so that's really a neat thing. So we've been able to try a lot of different things. And our kids are really used to kind of moving around. Yeah, I, I love that point that, you know, I, I'm an explorer as well. I mentioned before the call started, born in New York, raised in Guatemala, spent six years traveling the world, two suitcases. Then I had to settle down a little bit when I, you know, got married and traveled a little bit less. And, you know, then we have three kids and I've still traveled quite a bit, but sure. that is interesting. We're still trying to find home, right? I mentioned that we're headed to New York, you know, very yeah. soon and maybe that's home long-term. I, I, I think we can cut it. I think we're sort of made for that environment, but we're, it really is true that there's, there's a bunch of, there's a couple different things happening. You're trying to find home. Where does it feel at home? Cause you can't force home. It's, it just happens. It just, you feel it all of a sudden. But then on the other side of the equation, you've got your people, you've got your, 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 your close people. And usually that's your partner and your kids, or, you know, it could be some other people, but you got your people and wherever they are, you can usually cut it. You can usually make it yeah. because those are the people that have your back no matter what. Um, and yeah, that's interesting. So Milwaukee, yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah. So, so we're, we've been, we've been happy. We've been happy here, but we are also understand that, you know, life could bring on another change and we, 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 we like to stay flexible. You know, it was, it was really my, my, my two younger kids are, are, are still at home. We have two older kids who are out of the house. Uh, and, but we, we were thinking that it would have been nice to take advantage of this COVID environment and get in a, camper and just travel around the country and then have our home be be the 
the camper and uh but my wife doesn't trust me driving it so uh we we had to put the kibosh on that idea well there you go i've i've had a few friends that have done that they've they've loved it they've all loved it if if this wasn't such a crazy year of like work and dreaming and creating for me um i think we might have done the same thing because it's been it's been let me ask you this because i i don't want to go on and on about how our pandemic experience was i'll chime in at different points but like i'd love to hear so you didn't go traveling how was how well we're not out of it yet how has the pandemic been for you all have there been some ups and downs uh what's sort of been the the general feeling through it so we so to give you uh, your, your listeners a little bit of a background you know for oh my goodness now 14 years prior to 2013 uh so so from like 2000 from 99 to 2013 I worked as a college basketball coach so we moved around a lot and then I went from there to working for ESPN for a couple of years um and then I went from ESPN right to working in the NBA which was even more travel so the pandemic ironically for us has been a a real blessing because we have been able to spend more time together. And, and it was, it, my wife pointed out to me, it was the first time in 20 years that I have been home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and, or, and, and been able to see the whole process from start to finish. You know, so Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, this was the first time in 20 years that we weren't traveling somewhere or they didn't come out to visit me or I didn't have to open up Christmas presents and then leave and, and so it, it 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 has been really a neat experience. I would say 85 to 90 percent of the time has been extremely positive, positive for us. Uh, you know, there's some negative things like, you know, I, a, a lot of my friends and I, what we have experienced with home with with sort of the virtual learning is you get a real deep look into what is actually happening in the education system yep. and it is shockingly is shocking and surprising. And, yep. Yep. uh, so, uh, you know, if, if there was ever any negative, it was kind of, we have to rethink, I think we all have to rethink how we deliver and receive education for our youngsters. Uh, but, but from a family standpoint, it's been, it's been, we've been very lucky. You know, my mom is still alive. She's 83. She lives in Chicago. Uh, she never got COVID. She's vaccinated now. We've we 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 really stayed close to home. We had our just our family and didn't do anything for more than a year. So so from a health standpoint, we enjoyed it and and we were able to enjoy it because we were together and we were healthy. A couple things there. I'll start at the tail end of what you said. You know about the education system. If, if there have been multiple big things that have happened throughout this year that have truly exposed the 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 need to be home and the, the 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 space that we have to think and to even you know research and read and watch and see different things that are happening whether it's things that have happened in the black lives matter movement um or the education system my wife and i just had a pretty uh a fairly tense conversation this morning because we were talking, you know, early on in the pandemic, I was like, forget this virtual school thing. Let's just homeschool them. I think it'll be easier. I was homeschooled, grew up in, you know, grew up overseas. So we had to homeschool mm -hmm. and she was like, no, I can't do that. I'll deal with all the craziness of virtual school. And we were talking this morning, whether that was a, 
you know, whether she was right or I was right. And there's really no right or wrong. It's just been a hard year altogether. And yeah, it is. It, this year has, has shown us that there are so many things that we need to work on. Right. Yes. And now right. I think, you know, we had a, a, a much different circumstance, obviously in the, in, you know, the 1918, you know, Spanish flu, right. Uh, a similar pandemic. I, I thank God that we went through a pandemic in 2020 and not 1918. Like, yeah, right. It, all things considered, it was super easy, right? We have yeah. books and we have Netflix and we have each other and we can like, if you wanted to, you could get in a camper and drive around the country, right? We right. Have all these things. Right. I can't even imagine going through something like this, you know, 102 years ago, but you know, after the pandemic in 1918, you had the roaring twenties, right? A direct result of being cooped up for a year or two. I think that's coming. Not just, I'm not talking just economically. I think that'll happen. I think a lot of people are starting stuff and, you know, people are more creative than ever in a lot of ways. But I also think that so many inequities, so many inequalities, so many injustices, so many problems have, you know, reared their ugly heads over this year. And now we have to decide what, what are we going to do with that? Whether it's the education system, whether it's, you know, any number of things, some of which we will, you know, dive into, you know, during this conversation, but it's, it's so true. We have realized, you know, when we send our kids off to school every day, you don't realize some of the some of the stuff that's happening. And now right. you, now it's, it's, they're sitting right next to you, right on a, on a zoom screen. There's one in the other room. There's one in the other room. And you're just like, man, this is, you know, the, 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 the problems that are coming up, this is not, this is not working. So, but, yeah. but, but another thing is uh, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier when I asked you about the pandemic. And that is, I feel so, I feel very similarly to you that I was on the road, you know, for, my kids have seen, my kids have grown up seeing me, you know, dropping me off at the airport every couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, I I've, I've seen them so much on FaceTime as they've grown up just in my line of work, we do different things, but I was always, you know, out and about doing different things, recording stuff, you know, producing this event, doing that always somewhere else. And this year forced me to knock it on a plane for 13 months and forced me to stay home. And I'll be honest, like, I feel like I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a decent father that's always striving to be better. My wife mm -hmm. is an incredible, you know, mother. She's so good. Shows me up every single day on how to be a, you know, a spectacular parent. And I was scared that I was going to, that I was going to screw up this year. I was scared that this was going to be like a really hard year that I was going to get sick of being home all the time. And it was going to get so frustrating and I wasn't going to enjoy it. And sure, there've been hard moments for sure, but by and large, it's been incredible. Like it's been super incredible to just be grounded and to be around the people that have my back, no matter what my wife, my kids, our little neighbor circle here, um, our little close pod, man, it's been so healthy for me. Now I'm ready to get back out. Maybe not as much. One thing that this has done for me is like, okay, do you need to travel as much? You've still gotten your work done and you've still done all the stuff without traveling as much, do you need to go out? So um, what are you looking forward to as this pandemic, it's not over, horrible things happening, all, you know, South America and India, and, you know, we could, we could have another surge here. I, I kind of expect it to happen because of how um, many Americans have responded to this pandemic. But as we seem to be coming out of it, as more people get vaccinated, what are you most looking forward to when things get back to quote unquote normal? 
Yeah, I I would say that's that's a real easy one for us to answer. We we you 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 use the term explorer earlier and I'll use the term adventuresome. We are yep. an adventuresome family, right? And we like going places, doing things. Um, you know, we have family that's all around the country. You know, my wife's parents are out east. My mom is, like I said, is is down in DC, is is down in Chicago. Uh, my sister is in DC, and my kid, my uh, two older kids are on the East Coast. So we we want to get out and adventure, and and not only just adventure because we did that during the pandemic, sort of remote uh, uh, remotely. Sure, you know, kind of going on hikes and walks yep. and things yep. of that nature. But we wanna we wanna be adventuresome around other folks, you know, interacting with other people. So I think that's what 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 I look forward to the most. Um, and certainly seeing family. Um, yeah. And you know, and and now realizing, like you just said, Nick, just moments ago, I can get a lot done without having to travel, be in an office, uh, you know, Zoom helps. Uh, but I mean, just the getting, the, being able to get things done remotely, we always put a premium on shaking hands and, yep. and getting together with people. There's still going to be a, a need for that and times to do that, but certainly we don't have to be as wound as tightly as we had been before the pandemic. And that's where I think when you talk about you know, the roaring 20s, I think it's you're going to have uh, a sort of different kind of release here after that. I think people are going to what what I found is that most people are very have been very introspective about their leisure time and how valuable it is and and how we all need to work to provide ourselves with uh, um, the, the necessities you need to survive. But I think you're going to see a lot more people kind of going after less to get more. I love that. I love that. Yeah, we're learning how to be, we're learning that you can get more done, not moving around as much, right? right. I love that going after more, you know, but 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 less effort to get there. And we will be way more, uh, 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 we'll think twice about booking that ticket or whatever. I remember before the pandemic, I had this like weird memory before we actually moved to Nashville in our four years here coming to an end. But before we moved here, I came here for a, a, a business meeting and I literally flew in, you know, I flew in that morning and left that afternoon. Like that's mm -hmm. the thinking before was like, I needed to come in for a meeting. I, I, we lived in, in just South of Seattle before that flew in from Seattle all the way across the country, arrived, you know, got 30 minutes of sleep, went to the meeting, did a couple things, had lunch, had another meeting, and then flew back. Like that's that's insane that we did that. Um, yeah. And so I do think we're gonna just think twice and three times before you know doing those things. Just maximizing the little time that we have. Like, do I need yeah. to go there, take that trip, meet with that person? Um, and and like you pointed out, there's no substitute for shaking a hand, going in for the hug. You know you know, clinking glasses when you're sitting across from a friend at a, you know, there's no substitute for that. And I hope we get back to that, but we right. will think, we will think twice about it. So you're born in Chicago. Yep. I was born in Woodlawn. Okay. 
and we moved to South Shore. Uh, you're thinking Calumet. Calumet. Park. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, Calumet was a little south of South Shore. Got it. Um, but I grew up, uh, you know, we lived in, in, in Woodlawn for, you know, almost three years, the first three years of my life. Then we moved to South Shore, which is where my mom's house is. Uh, she, 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 that's where we, where that's our home, right? That's when I think of home, I think of South Shore, 74th and Euclid. Our house was there from, from the, the time I was three until right now. Does your mom still live in that same house? No, she does she not doesn't. live in that house, but, um, um, it's still there and, and, and she still owns it, but, or actually now I think, you know, uh, it, it might, it might be in the process of being sort of a, uh, uh, what do you, what do you call that? Like a landmark? Of, Got it. Uh, yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, thanks to my sister and my brother-in-law, but, um, but she, she doesn't live there now, but she, she, she only moved out of there about three years ago. Got it. So that's a, that's kind of seared into your memory. Uh, tell yeah. me, tell me about your, tell me about your parents. Uh, who are they? What did they do? Cause I want to get into some of like the upbringing and we'll also, you know, you have this one sister, what's her name again? Um, I think some of our <laughs> listeners might've, uh, might've heard of her, but let's talk about your parents, who they are. What did they do? Yeah. My, so, so, uh, my, my dad was Frazier Robinson, the third, which, which we always laughed at because, uh, he always said, when you have a third after your name, you should be coming into some money. And we were, you know, we were just very, very, uh, working class. Poor. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. and my mom, Marion, uh, they both were born in, and raised in Chicago, but my father's family was from, uh, South Carolina, uh, and, um, Mississippi and my mom's family was from Mississippi and they both families migrated to Chicago. They met, grew up in Chicago, uh, and were, couldn't have provided a better, um, environment to Mm. grow up in. Right. And, you know, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, they were the type of parents who were, um, like most parents, nervous enough being parents for the first time, but also uh, insightful enough to know they did, didn't know everything. And, you know, our, when, when I think about our childhood, I think about this sort of um, hugely loving environment, but there was also a sense of accountability for the gifts that you have been given even though we didn't have much. And, and those gifts were intellect and ability to get up and go to work every day. Uh, and, and, and most people know by now the story of my dad, he had MS, but we didn't know it at the time. And, and, and he walked with a limp from the very, from my, mem- my first memories of my dad, he had a limp and it got progressively worse where he, eventually he had the crutches that went around your arms that you held on yeah, to yeah. and he kind of dragged his feet along. We found out in my, t- in my sort of teenage years that he, he, uh, he had, he, 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 uh, had MS. And so he was disabled, but he never missed a day of work, never wow. missed a day of work. And he worked for the city of Chicago in the water department and he worked a swing shift. So he worked six, di- six days on days, a couple days off, six days on, afternoons, couple days off and six days on night, couple days off and wow. just, 
and and was was absolutely present in everything we did. And when he came home from work, no matter what time it was, he didn't rush to go to bed. He was engaged with us. He was playing with us outside, doing homework, playing inside the house games. Um, um, and then my mom was a homemaker from up until, you know, my sister, Michelle went to college or no, went to high school, I should say. And she was a secretary at a bank. Um, but you know, it was, it when when I think of, when I think back, Nick, about my upbringing, I feel like, um, I, we, we had the best of all possible worlds and we didn't have mm. anything, man. We lived in a, we lived in a one bedroom apartment above my aunt. It was a two family house and, and we had one bedroom and my sister and I shared a bedroom. And when you, when we go back and go upstairs and look at that place, it's like, it's, it's the size of a tiny house. The, the tiny house show they have oh, on yeah. where they're showing people living in these one room places. It was just like that, but four, four people were in there. That's incredible. You know, wh- one thing that I latched onto, and I, I want to kind of inquire, you know, your dad's been gone for thir- 30 years now, even by my math is correct. Almost, Nin- all, 1991. almost 30 years. Yeah. 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 And you said he, he, he started walking with a limp or as, as long as you can remember, had a limp, like what did, yep. it, but he didn't find out until later that he had MS. Did did, was he, was that just the attitude that he didn't want to go get like checked out or what well, was going on there that kept him from like, you know, n- not that you can prevent that from happening from, from my understanding, like when you have MS, like it just comes on and, but yeah, like, that, that, that was, that was more of a, um, that was more of a, what, what is the term that I want to use for that? That was cultural, right? Because sure. Black folks in the inner city didn't have doctors. Like we only went to see a doctor when there was something wrong, right? Because you grow up and the system isn't built for you, right? They don't really want you around anyway. And doctors are expensive. So it's like your healthcare, our healthcare was the emergency room. So if I had a fever or strep throat or I had to go see a doctor, we went to the emergency room. So you only went if there was something really serious. And that's a cultural phenomenon. And uh, and, and underrepresented communities, now that I'm older, I realize this is a problem, you know, worldwide. Yep. So it wasn't like he, he it wasn't like he was avoiding going. He just felt like he 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 had hurt his back. He thought it was a function of his of a back injury. He had a he had a surgery on his back and had a disc removed. Um, and then after that, he thought he was, he was limping because of what had happened from that surgery. So he wasn't an infirm person other than being sort of what right. we call now disabled. Back then they said handicapped. Yep. And, but he really didn't feel bad. So he got up and went to work every day. He just had to get up a little earlier and make sure he got places a little, he got started earlier so he could be on time. And so it, 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 and, and, and even, even by the time we had to sort of get physicals to, to start school, you did that at a clinic, right? You didn't, we didn't have a family doctor. I mean, I didn't have a family doctor until I was shoot 
well into my 30s yeah. when I realized that I should get a I should get a checkup every year, have blood work done, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's how that went so long before it got diagnosed because, um, and then on top of it, there was some denial on his part and our part that this, this phenomenon was getting worse. And once we realized that it was getting worse, then we went to see a specialist and all that kind of stuff. And that was when he was diagnosed. You know, I, I wondered if you were going to go there and I'm obviously not glad that you did, but I, I figured that's where you were going to go, that it wasn't a, it was just cultural. And I think beyond, uh, this is not my expertise, but just from my experience talking with people and even being poor growing up myself, it, it, it is among, you know, the black community, but it's also just poor people. Like right. it's, it is an indictment on our country that poor people can't get health care. Right. All of the money, all of the resources, all of the things we could do to help people, you have this whole, these generations of people that don't have family doctors and that wait until the very, very last second to go get help. Right. And, and as a result, people get sicker and sicker. People die that shouldn't die. People get sick right. that shouldn't get sick. And it's just, it's terrible. And, and I don't know if if things were different culturally, if your dad would have gotten better help or, you know, been able to stay alive longer. I don't know any of that, but I do. I, I was wondering if you were going to go there and you went right there. And I was like, man, that it, it pains me that it pains. Here's what, here's why it pains me. That was happening back in the, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right. Leading up to yeah. his death. And it's still happening today. Right. I, I know right. people in my friend circle that don't have means that don't have resources that can barely pay for the worst kind of insurance and they don't go to the doctor because they're scared shitless that they're going to get a bill that they can't pay. That's that, and that's that, that and and it. The, you said it. It that it's been going on for years. So that was and 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 had I not met my current wife, I probably would have been a, a younger version of that guy. Mm. And and um, you know, so it's been it's it it it's in it, in a way my dad's disability made us be more concerned about our own personal health and, 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 you know, times are different now. There's sure. so much more information yep. that you can avail yourself of. And so, you know, we're just in better shape right now, but um, yeah, that was, that was back then, man. I, I went to get shots, immunity, immunizations sort of, uh, um, um, penicillin shots when you, when you had a yep. infection and that was it. That's wild. What yeah, are you crazy? Craig, what do you miss most about your dad? Oh, I miss the fact that, um, so he was the best storyteller of the family, mm. right? So he was the keeper of all the family folklore. And I had always thought that, you know what, uh, we, we would have family gatherings and people would love for him to tell a story about something. And I was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to have to start taping these. And, and, and I was thinking as, as we got older, cause my, my dad got sick and died like in, in a week period. Right. Mm. So it wasn't like it was a long drawn out, um, illness and, and it wasn't due. We, we don't think it was due to the MS. So it was just something completely different from not going to the doctor probably. Sure. But, 
Um, so we didn't have time to do that. So that that is the first part I missed. The second part I missed is the fact that he missed all of this, the, the things that my sister and I have done that was due to his Man. parenting. Yep. So I re- that really, I mean, he doesn't know, his, he'd never met his grandkids. He's all the things that we've been fortunate enough to be a part of and have accomplished. He was the reason for all of that or one of the reasons for it along with my mom and couldn't, you know, didn't, didn't, wasn't here to experience it. And depending on where you are spiritually, people say, well, he saw it anyway. I'm like, yeah, right. I don't, that's not good enough for me. I wanted him to be here and see it so I could share it with them. Regardless of what the afterlife looks like, that's yeah. not the same. That's not the same. Yes. And, we, and we don't know what the, we don't know what's going on in the afterlife. Really, we can, we have our beliefs and our faith and our theories, right? But that's really what they are because we don't know. It is faith. Faith is not seeing something and still believing it, right? You can have faith in a million different things, and no, it's 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 not remotely the same as having. You know, just like I see your mom uh, in these interviews on, you know, on the Becoming documentary, like all these places, like that's so special for her to be alive, to experience that along with, you know, you and Michelle, that's, you know, not even remotely same, the same. Um, so you went to Princeton, which yeah. you, what I want to dig into here is that you have said multiple times that you come from a family of little to no means. Right. Right. So talk me through how that happened, because I do know that you got offers, you got full ride scholarship offers and you chose the school where you'd actually have to, you know, pay money. There was still, I think there was still some scholarships there, but it was, if you still have to pay versus like this full ride scholarship to the other school. Right. So what was your thinking, uh, there, you know, coming from where you came from, uh, what were, what was your hope going to, you know, Princeton and making that happen? However you did, uh, versus, you know, taking the full ride scholarship, uh, route. Yeah, Nick, that was a real, uh, that was, that was a circuitous route to say the least. And I'll tell you what happened. So, um, growing up, so neither one of my parents finished, you know, they both started college, but didn't finish, you know, they, they, my, my mom went for a little t- bit of time and then had to go to work. My dad might've gone for a shorter period of time. And then he went right to work. Uh, but, but his younger siblings all went to college. Right. Mm. And, and a couple of my mom's younger siblings went to college. So they, they understood the value of education and a higher education. Um, so we grew up knowing we were going to go to college because my parents sort of did the whole indoctrination thing. You go to, you do well in grammar school, so you can get into good high school. You do well in high school, you get into good college. So that was it. Uh, In the meantime, like I'm developing into this athlete that I didn't know that I was right. I didn't, I, I, I enjoyed sports because it was fun. I liked to compete. My sister and I played everything together. So we, played sports growing up just for entertainment purposes. And then we start, I started to get in organized sport. And so, you know, jump ahead to high school. I'm like on the high school basketball team. I'm like, okay, this is fun. Um, but I, I, I'm not thinking I'm going to be able to use this for college because you sure. didn't have the information you had back then. So, uh, and, and, and nobody was paying attention until my, so my sophomore to junior year in high school, P- 
people started paying attention to my basketball ability. So what happened was I started to get started to get recruited and realized that, oh, my goodness, I have this opportunity to get my education financed using basketball. So um, I get recruited by, you know, a, a fair share of schools, one of which being Princeton. And, but Princeton was the only Ivy League school that recruited me. Hmm. And uh, and I didn't, I, you know, so what does Ivy League mean to a guy whose parents didn't go to college? I, I You know what? When, when I heard Princeton, I thought about the Flintstones, you know, Princeton, ah, Shale. Sure. And yep. I, yeah, yep. you know, Fred Flintstone, when they when they did the, the parody on the Ivy League schools. So I was like, oh, OK, I know they're good academic schools, but that's all I knew. Yeah. Right. And I didn't know the difference between going to an Ivy League school and going to, say, like a, 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 a bigger school that wasn't as academically um, well known. So I got I, I, I uh, got recruited narrowed it down to the University of Texas at Arlington, University of Washington, which was in the Pac-8 back then. That shows you how old I am. It's Pac-12 now. And then Princeton. I had narrowed it down to those three. So my dad had me after dinner in our kitchen table, uh, at our kitchen table. He sat at the head and I sat across from him. My mom sat on this side and my sister would usually be on this side, but my mom was doing dishes. My sister was gone somewhere playing. And and my dad said, well, man, um, what do you think? What are you thinking about? Where do you want to go to school? And I said, you know, I I think I'm going to go to the University of Washington. And my dad did what he would do when he didn't think you made the right decision. Was it a face? So, that, so I'm going to show you it and I'm going to describe it for the folks who are listening. So he would rub his hand over his face with his <laughs> eyes closed and come all the way down to his chest. And then he put his chin down to his chest and rub like his stubble against the skin. It was a thing he did. And you knew he was disappointed. You knew it. And you knew it. And all I could think of was I'm disappointing the person I look up to the most. Mm. Here's this guy who's working hard for us to be successful, gets up and goes to work every day, has MS, and he is disappointed. And but he didn't he didn't say he was disappointed. He just had that reaction. And then he calmly said, well, tell me, how did you come to that decision? And I, and I said, well, and I, I was all ready with my rationale, right? Because they had raised me right. So, you, you know, if you're going to make a decision, have a good rationale. I said, well, they have a great engineering program because at the time I thought I was going to be an engineer. I said, they play in the Pac-8 conference, which is a big conference. And I worked out with those guys when I was there because I had gone on an official visit and I thought I could, I said, by my junior year, I think I could, I could play. I could, I, I could be starting by the time I was a junior, maybe, maybe. And, and so, and, and then I said, and, and the most important thing was that it's free. 
because at the time, Princeton was 13 grand a year. Right. And we our family contribution was like two thousand or twenty five hundred. You might as well have said it was two million to me because I was like twenty five hundred dollars. No way. Can't. I'm not going to do that to my parents. So my dad said he said, well, I'm only going to say one thing. If you pick your school based on how much I have to pay, I'm going to be disappointed. Mm. Mm. And it, it, that when he said he was going to be disappointed, if when he was disappointed, the whole house was disappointed. So he said, why don't you think about that? And then we'll talk about this tomorrow. And I went to my room and I was just like defeated. And so the next day comes around the exact same situation. He's sitting at the head of the table. I'm at the other end. My mom's doing dishes. My sister's nowhere to be found. And he says, well, have you thought about what we talked about yesterday? And I said, yeah. I said, I thought about it. And, you know, and I said, you know, it's funny. I actually liked And before I could get anything other than the PR in Princeton out, he slammed his hand on the desk and uh, on the table and said, fine, you'll go there. Yeah. (laughs) So that was his way of letting me make my decision where to go as long as I made the right decision. Yeah. So that is, Nick, how I ended up at Princeton paying and, and taking out loans rather than getting a free education because this guy with no college education, but a lot of street smarts knew that um, Princeton was the right move for me. Now I will tell you, I was, I was telling the truth. I actually did like Princeton the best, but I was, it was no way we were going to pay that. Now the, there is a postscript to this story because once I, graduated from Princeton and I'm, you know, I, I have this wonderful career there and I, I'm educated. And then I, I, I end up going to the University of Chicago, which was the number one business school at the time. And I'm, I'm on my way to this career in, in finance that, that's, you know, what people dream about. I'm over at my mom's after my dad had died and I'm, we're going through some papers and she's trying to get me my name on things. And so that I know where things are in case something happens. And so I go through, I'm going through these papers and I see these uh, visa bills and I'm looking through and I'm like, what are all these credit card charges? And my mom was like, give me that. You weren't supposed to see that. And Mm. I, I didn't let her. And I was trying to figure it out what I came to find out, Nick, that they financed their part of the family contribution with credit cards because they didn't have the money. Wow. How about that? And that is how I ended up at Princeton University. Has there ever been, even at that moment when you're rifling through credit card statements and realizing the the amount of effort it took for them to, you know, send you there and keep you there, did you ever regret that? Or do you, do you f- still to this day you know, give thanks to the universe for like sending you there versus, you know, UW or, you know, At, or Texas. Absolutely. And no, no offense to any of the other schools, sure. but it was, it, it, it changed our lives, not just my life. It changed our whole family's life. And 
And, uh, and, and, and let me tell you, it wasn't a piece of cake because I, at one point when I got there freshman year, I thought I was going to flunk out. And I, I called my dad up crying that I had, I was in over my head and he talked me off the ledge and I ended up, you know, finishing at Princeton, getting my degree and having a, a, a great experience, both academically as well as athletically and socially. So you, at what point did you, obviously basketball has played a huge part in your life back then in, in college, but also you went on to like coach and also, you know, uh, you played, uh, professionally internationally overseas, you were recruited to the 76ers or you were brought onto the team. Maybe you can clarify that, uh, for me, but it's been a huge part of your life. Talk to me about like, why, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's just that, yeah. Why, why basketball? And, and what's special about the sport of basketball? I've got a couple reasons. One is I'm just genuinely curious your, your opinion. Yeah. Basketball is one sport that I've never been able to like, I'm not a big sports guy as it is. I'll, I'll be honest. Like I grew up in Guatemala. So actual football, the real football soccer was, was part of, part of my everyday. And I loved baseball, but that was about it. And now I just don't have time or the the mental capacity to to keep sports, you know, in in my life. But basketball, like I see so many people that love it so much, and yeah. and and it, it obviously the community aspect and all that. But why basketball for you? Yeah, so basketball for me, and and listen, I grew up playing every sport, right? So I we, back in the day, you just played the sports that were in season. So sure. I played football in the fall. I played ice hockey in the wintertime. I played basketball anytime it was warm enough out where we could go to the court. I played baseball in the summertime along with basketball. So, and, and then we, we ran, all ran track, right? And what attracted me to basketball were a couple of things. One, it is... Um, one of the sports where you can affect the game on the offense and the defensive side constantly. Oh, interesting. Yeah, sure. So it's, you know, baseball, you're either on offense or on defense. Same with football, you're either on offense or on defense. But like, like football, you are on offense and defense all the time. Even the if time. you're, even if you're an attacker, you got to come back and play defense. So, you know, I, I, if I had known about soccer when I was growing up, I might've enjoyed soccer too. Um, but um, so that was a real, that was a real thing to me, being able to do all parts of the game and affect the game. The other thing is, is that and I and I've heard this from a lot of people. Basketball to me is 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 artistically close to the most perfect game in my opinion mm. because you have to you have to be athletic enough to 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 do certain things, but you also have to be creative enough to be able to do things against somebody who might be more athletic than you are. And speed helps, but sometimes you have to slow down to be good. Um, so there's a there's a level of artistry to it. And I'm not an artist. My dad was an artist and my sons are artists, but I'm not an artist. So that was my way of getting my artistic um, 
the the artistic part of my being some fuel, you know, and 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 basketball is just one of those games when you watch good players play, it's a beautiful game to watch, right? So it was it was those two things. And then the third thing, I was I was actually pretty good at it. I got pretty good at it. So it's always fun being one of the best at something, 100%. even if you hate it. And yeah. I loved it. So it was it was nice having some expertise. Um, and, and it's it like most sports. It's a game where, you know, a lot of guys who have lesser ability but work hard get rewarded. Right. Mm. So that was that was always uh, that was always. And then the final thing, and 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 I'll shut up, is that it's a it's a it's it's a team sport, right? You, uh, I I I didn't grow up playing one on one, right? I always like playing five on five or three on three more than I like playing one on one because I like the team aspect of it and sharing the sharing the the ups and downs and the positives and negatives of other people's games and your games and trying to figure out how you can win, even when you don't have the best team. So you put all that together. It was, it's that, that's why for me, it was, it was basketball over say football, along with the fact that my mom and dad wouldn't let me play football. There you go. No, that's super, that's super helpful. I can see all of that. The little bit I do know about basketball, I can see all of that. At, at, at a certain point in your career, you went from playing basketball to coaching basketball. And you said earlier, I think you said well over a decade you coached, right? At a, at a variety of different universities and different, you know, different programs. We all have, even outside of sports, we all have coaches, right? We all, whether it's a yeah. mentor, a boss, uh, our partner, you know, in, in, a, in a marriage or another type of partnership, we've all got these people that mentor us and coach us through life. And there, there are many people that don't have that and you can see yeah. the effects of it, right? Right. So what makes a good coach? And on top of that, get more specific. I mean, brag on yourself for, for a little bit, because from what I can tell, the internet at least tells me you're a damn good coach. So what makes a good coach, but also what makes you a good coach? What is it about you that helps you be a good coach? And what does it take to be a good coach? And, and people yeah. listening can 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 switch out coach for mentor for whatever. Sure. Because we all need those people in our lives. Sure, Nick. And I appreciate that question. Um, and I will start to answer it by saying this. Um, you and some people don't even know that they have the, the the impact they have on other people, right? True. True. So I was fortunate because I had Marion and Frazier Robinson as my first coaches. Mm. So yep. it made me both appreciate coaching and understand how important coaching is. And you, I, I, I you, you, you said coaching could be mentoring and bosses. And I think coaching is parenting. I think you're coaching right now with your three kids. You're coaching you're so them all right. the time. You're, you're so their right. first coach if they haven't gotten into sports. And, um, and I've always thought coaches help you do what you couldn't normally do on your own without having time to figure it out. Right. Like, you know, you could figure out how to ride a bike at a two-wheeler at some point, even if nobody showed you how. You right. could figure it out, but it'll probably take you a month. But if you have a good teacher, you can learn that joint in a day. And so I think 
Um, what it takes to be a good coach is patience. It takes intellect or experience in something that you can pass on. It takes the ability to listen. That's a big one that people miss out on because they're too busy coaching instead of listening to what the other people, what, what, what your, what your players or your, um, the, your, your direct report needs. Sometimes we coach, we overcoach. We just coach in what we want to coach and not coach in what the player needs. Um, empathy is my biggest one, right? I think that really good coaches are empathetic. They can put themselves in the position of their player and understand why they're doing what they're doing. Because once you figure that out, then you can really coach them up. And I'm sure I'm leaving something out. But the, the most important thing, what I think makes me a good coach and a good manager and a good leader is that I try to be egoless in mm. my coaching. Yeah. Right. And in my managing, too, because... You, what, the reason why really good performers make bad coaches is because they don't understand that a lot of stuff they can do, nobody else can do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, I think what makes me good is that I like to develop other people. And I'm not afraid if I develop them past me. Like, you know, there in you corporate America, that's what, that's what I learned working in corporate America before I got into coaching. In order to get promoted in corporate America, you have to develop the person who can do your job so that then people feel comfortable you leaving your job to take a better job, right? A lot of people don't learn that in society, right? So I think that's what I'm really good at is helping people get to get to past where they thought they could get to. Um, so that, 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 that's a, that I, that's a cumbersome answer to your question, but I'm, I'm trying no, to, it's think, a, it's, you know, yeah, it's a, a great, it's a great answer. And I'm so glad you brought up the, you know, you, you acknowledge that yes, it's mentoring. Yes. It's sometimes being a boss, but it's parenting, right? Yeah. That's, that's when people ask me, you know, what, what would be, what would be success as a parent? What, what, what would be success with your three kids as a parent? I've, my answer always, even when I didn't fully understand, and I still don't fully understand what it means, what, like what the ramifications are of such a big statement, but I've always told them, I want my kids to do better and to do better in life and to be better at life than I did. That's it. And that takes a lot of humility because I have big aspirations. I'm building what I think are big things that are going to help a lot of people. And yet I can't lose sight while I'm doing all of my stuff in my career. I can't lose sight of the fact that at home, I've got three little ones that need my guidance. They need my help. They don't need me to tell them what to do all the time. They don't need me shaming them when they mess up. They don't need me, uh, 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 you know, answering all the questions they have right away without helping them answer some of the questions themselves, Right. right? right? They don't need all of that. They need someone that is humble. They need someone that is empathetic. They do need me to know, you know, generally by and large, like what I'm doing, but it just takes a lot of humility. And you talked about listening too. I have one daughter that I love to the moon and back. She's eight years old. We're actually very much alike as I think back growing up, my dad and I, I'm one of 12 kids Oh wow! and 
out of all 12 kids, I'm the second oldest. If you ask my parents right now, especially my dad, he's grayer on top than, than my mom is. What, like who gave you most of those gray hairs? The, without, without even hesitating, they will say, Nick, Nick, Nick gave us most of the gray hairs. Yeah. We were very, we were too similar. My dad and I were too similar, right? So we yeah. we bucked heads like so much. Well, my daughter and I are doing that now. And I find so many times that while she's, I will ask her a question. She'll be, she'll be doing whatever. And it's, you know, she'll be being a drama queen or, you know, getting, getting too upset at her sister or whatever. And I will ask what's going on. And while she's answering, I interrupt her to begin trying to fix the situation. Yeah. And she... Right comes at me so hard. She says, you're not even letting me finish. Yeah, yeah. Like, And she's how, eight. She's, she's eight. eight. And she's like, how, <laughs> you're, you're, you asked me a question and you didn't give me a chance to answer. And I look over and my wife just looks at me and gives me the eyes like she's telling you the truth. So just yeah. like back off and listen to her. And, and typically when I listen, I, it might not be, you know, uh, it might not exonerate her what she's explaining, but it sure Sure as hell gives me more context for, okay, here's how I can help out now, right? So just a lot of listening. I was not a good listener for many, many years in my career. It got me it got me places because I didn't listen to people and I just did what I knew I needed to do. It also got me into a lot of trouble. So now as a parent, I'm learning that listening is one of the key parts of being a leader, which is not what the world tells you. It's not what society tells you. They want you to be this like alpha male. They want you to like take charge and tell everybody what to do and this and that. And it's like, no, actually most of leadership, most of coaching, most is a lot of mentorship is listening. Yeah. So you get the full context of what's going on and then you can give your feedback. Then you can lead, then you can guide knowing fully what's going on. So I, I, I love that answer. I think that's super helpful good. before, yeah. before we move on to, I want to spend a good chunk of our time on, um, the, you and Michelle Obama, right? This, this, uh, you know, beautiful brother, sister combo. And obviously a lot of people know about, you know, the Obamas and all that they've done, you know, in this country and for this country, Real quickly, though, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, because we're talking about some of your career stuff right now, before we move on from that, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our friends at Vooks. I wanted to make sure to give them a, a shout out in this conversation. Vooks yeah. is a company that you and I both love. Um, I recently did, did some work with them, and you're an ambassador for Vooks. So again, before, not to rush it, but before we move on, talk about how you got involved in Vooks why you're involved in Vooks. And, and I want yeah. to encourage, you know, any anyone that's listening that's taking care of kids needs to incorporate Vooks into their life. I I love the product. I love the company so much. Um, so yeah, well, just sh share for a minute yeah. or two about Vooks. I, uh, Nick, I appreciate that. And 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 that's how you and I got connected. So yep. it's 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 really appropriate. But Vooks, Vooks is, uh, you know, it, it's an it's an interactive reading system that helps kids learn from uh, interactive stories. So it's not a full on book and it's not just a video book where, you know, there it's, it's pages that are turned and it's a book that you're watching on video. It's interactive. So it's not a cartoon and it's not a book. It's a book. And it, what I liked about it was that, you know, I, I, I was, I was really, um, connected to them by a dear friend of mine, Lamar Hurd, uh, which is a totally different story because he um, 
was a, a guy I recruited when I first started coaching. And he ended up being on the search committee at Oregon State when I got the job. So oh, wow. that's that's the span of our relationship. And he introduced me to this to this company. And um, um, I, I just fell in love with them because I have always thought that reading, being able to read and comprehend was so important to my family and my sister and I's upbringing and our success that I wanted to share it with a lot of people. So when they asked me to be a part of it, I, I, I jumped on board right away. And, uh, and, and the company is, is just growing like gangbusters, but it really helps kids learn to love reading. And I think if you can read, you can do anything. Yep. So uh, books is uh, is near and dear to my heart. And, um, you know, we're trying to get as many uh, young people involved in reading and involved with books as we can. Teachers now are using it in the classroom. Parents are using it at home. And it is a real healthy way to get screen time for your kids. So uh, I appreciate you allowing me to have a little bit of a commercial, but it's, it's, it's such a great... Uh, it's such a great company and and they're so family oriented and family focused and that their values are matched up with the values of our family. So it's a it's a perfect fit. And, you know, when you can be passionate about a project, you can you're good at selling it. Yeah, of course. You know, when you were talking about being a coach, one of the things you mentioned that we didn't talk about was into, you have to you have to have intellect. You have to be into like nobody's yeah. gonna, nobody's going to want you to be their coach. You're not going to be a good coach, boss, mentor or even parent. It's going to be harder to be a parent if you're not aware of how the world works and you're not a, and you're, right. you you don't know how to read and study and 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 research well. And I, right. you know, one of the my favorite things about my kids is that they they watch very little they have very little screen time. We have now incorporated books into that screen time mm -hmm. and and they mm -hmm. process it. They think that's just as screen timey as a show. Yes. That that is probably dumb. And it's or not maybe not dumb, but it's not going to do anything for their well being. And now they can like enjoy. They really do on a daily basis. You know, watch books, and you know our kids just read all day long, books and physical books. We we yeah. we still even during the pandemic we make you know masked up you know safe uh, library runs every single week, 30, 40 books a week, and yeah. they just devour these books. And so I I I totally agree that that reading is such an important part of growing up. Yeah, and books this is a great time for books to be created because more and more our kids are, I mean, I, I just shudder at the thought of the next generation of kids that, that get just un, uh, just tons of screen time. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's unsupervised screen time, what that's going to do to their brains. And so I'm really hoping that books and other companies like books can figure out how to tap into that and right. not and not say no screen time. It's it's 2021. Our kids are growing up on these machines. They're going to be on the screens. They're going to be on the screens. And you 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 made a really good point. Books, kids who read books, it help it makes them want to read books more too. So that that's data that the that books has has done and it is uh it's so important, man. It's it's a great company, great people working on it. So Yeah. And I, and I'll put again. the I'll put the 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 URL and the link in the show notes. Let's talk about you and uh, the Obamas, right? Sure. So I I watched the uh, becoming the Netflix special. I I read 
becoming the book when it first came out. Just an amazing book. I mean, I I admire Michelle Obama so much. I admire your sister so much. Maybe even more. I admire the couple in the family. I love Barack as well. But mm-hmm. even more than Barack, I'm so attracted to Michelle's personality and her boldness and the how active she was as a first lady. She was not just a first lady. She was basically co-president, right? Like she <laughs> had there were so many things that she did. She was so vocal and so supportive of Barack while also just being herself, right? And you could tell there's some health in that marriage even as a spectator because there was so much support from Barack toward Michelle as well, right? There was mm-hmm. never this, you didn't see this like this uh, power struggle right there. Two very passionate individuals coming into the most public you know, position maybe on the planet. And you didn't see that power struggle. You saw, I, I'm not saying it was perfect, but you saw general unity and you know, two people working with each other, for each other. Uh, and I, I just, I loved that. But in, as I was reading, I recalled this, um, this, uh, you know, you came up many times. Well, in interviews and otherwise, you come up a lot with Michelle. She loves you a lot. That's clear. But in the book, I, I pulled up this quote. She's talking about you in the book, and she says, you have been my protector since the day I was born. You made me laugh more than any other person on this planet. You're the best brother a sister could ask for, a loving and caring son, husband, and father. And then in another interview, I heard her say that, she said, I also call you you know, my hero, my first hero, you know, is how she described you. So talk about, um, however you want to approach this, you and you and Michelle, that not just brother and sister, but that friendship and how it's even, I mean, it's, it seems stronger than ever, you know, now that you guys are grown adults with families and stuff, it seems so strong. Is it? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, 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 she she's really nice for saying so many nice things in 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 that in becoming uh it it just gives me chills even hearing you say it again but i would say the 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 reason why so so let me start we're we're just close in age right so we're 20 months apart yeah 2 years right? apart yeah yeah so not even quite 2 years right. apart and when you grow up in the inner city you're, if you have, if it's just the two of you, which it was with us, we played with each other from the very start. And, and I, um, I was always really protective of her, even though my mom didn't want me to be, she didn't want me to have to worry about a little sister. Right. But I was naturally protective. I always think back that it was because that my dad, my, it was because my dad was disabled that I, I had this sort of overly worried existence as a kid worrying about him being able to get out of the place if something happened and protecting the family so she fell right under that umbrella but what where we got the closest was that we just did everything together we played together we and and we didn't just we didn't just play games in the house. We played outside together. We played sports together. We uh, and we were we have completely different personalities, right? But we were literally each other's best friends growing up. Mm. And uh, and she was she was she is an extremely talented athlete. So 
she was who I used to practice all my stuff on, right? Like <laughs> baseball pitching yeah, and yeah. football throwing and basketball. She was my opponent and my teammate at the same time. So, um, but she wasn't into competing like that in sports. She just wasn't. So, um, so I think that um, our relationship started out close. And so, every, and, and, and we were both the types where our parents made us in or helped us understand that being happy for the other person is just as important as being happy for yourself. So yes. we had this, we had this great sort of back and forth where she would get uh, something good would happen to her and I would be the most excited person and something good happened for me and she would be the most excited for me. And so I think that's the real start of it. And then as we started getting older, we just stayed close and we talked all the time. I mean, like I said, we shared a bedroom for a while where we slept head to head. We'd be up all night talking. And then when we got older, our room got split into with the old kind of paneling. We had one room that got split into three rooms, her bedroom, my bedroom, and then the sort of common room in the in the middle. But there, there, the wall didn't go all the way up to the roof. So we just talked to each other at night and 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 I did feel like whenever she would come outside and be out there playing, I, I wanted to check on her to make sure she was OK, because, she, you know, she was younger and a girl. And, and even though she was tough, I wanted to make sure there was no one taking advantage of her. And uh, and it was just it was just sort of. That was the way it was. And and uh, and then as we've gotten older we've, we've shared each other's, you know, positive things and negative things and helped each other get through, through tough things. And, um, the only time we ever had any kind of negative sort of at each other was when my dad died. And it was not for anything other than we were both grieving and yeah, didn't know how yeah. to process it. That was, I mean, I can tell you like, you know, my sister being a little sister every now and then she didn't want me around and I made her, you know, so I got on her nerves, but you know, a real knockdown drag out argument. That was the only time. And so that is how we've come to our, you know, our relationship has evolved. Because I am not a big sports guy. The first time I saw you and now, you know, kind of, it's, it's kind of funny, like, you know, years and years later, I remember seeing you 2008 at the DNC in Denver, introduce your sister, right? At the Democratic yep. National Convention. I mean, a beautiful speech. Um, it, let's talk about those eight years briefly. Let's talk about the eight years of the Obama presidency. That obviously changed your, you know, obviously Brock and Michelle were already in the public eye uh, for a variety of reasons. But then they took on the 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 role of you know it's 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 so fascinating to me this it still is when i think about how few people have been in the role of the presidency yeah like it's we're crazy talking, right we're talking yeah. a few dozen people in the entirety of this country and it wasn't just any president right it was the first black president and the first black first lady just a tremendous thing so did your relationship get better during those eight years? How was it being the brother of quite possibly two of the most famous people on the entire planet? 
Yeah, it, 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 it's life changing, right? It, it, it really is. I mean, you can't and, and, you know, you look at this face and people see Michelle Obama when they see my face. It's amazing. And <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, you I know, can see it, it. it's, it's so much so that I was on Stephen Colbert's show and he did a picture of me with the hair of my sister. Like Photoshop. Because on. he thought we he cropped it in. So because he, he thought we looked so much alike. But that's what happens. So you go from, you know, and 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 it's listen, being a basketball coach at a major division one university, people recognize you from ESPN from time to time. But it's not anything. It's not anything like it became once they were in the White House. I mean, you know. And and like you mentioned, them being the first black family, everybody wanted to come up and say congratulations. Yep. Thank you. Can I take a picture? It was just something we never planned for. And we tried to sort of talk about all the things that are could happen if 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 they ever made it all the way to the White House. So it was tough, but it was it was so humbling and gratifying to see how they touch so many people, because I would say 90 percent of the feedback or interactions I had were positive. And there were 10 percent of the people who would, you know, there's always the trolls or the sure people who would say nasty things. And um, but it was um, I would say, Nick, it was it was a, an eye opening, but it was it was eye open and an eye opening experience. But it, I would not change it, even though it was hard for everyone else in the family. Right. But, um, you know, you just learn how to deal with it. And and that, that uh, it takes me all the way back to my parents. You just you, you know, they were really good at preparing us for this, even though they didn't have any idea we were being prepared for this. And you just treat people with the way you'd like to be treated. Um, speak your mind, stand up for yourself. And, you know, you can you can make it through just about anything. And we made it through those eight years. How happy are you now that you get I'm sure you get more of your sister now, you know, post 2016. So how happy are you that yeah, that, that, it, that it, era it, is it's, finally it's, over? It's, it's 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 so much nicer that they're the former president and first lady uh because, you know, you can share more of the time with them, but um but you know, my sister tried to make it as normal as possible for us when they were in there. I mean, you mm. know, I, I I would play a game in D.C. and take my team to the White House. We'd have Christmas. Uh, a, we'd be there for a Christmas party or a, a Thanksgiving or, you know, we or birthdays. We tried to make it as my sister tried to make it as normal as possible for her kids, which meant she wanted our kids around so that they could have sort of a fam- a normal family, as, as normal a family experience as you could have being in there in their shoes. Uh, but it's so much nicer now because it's there, there, there's a lot, it's a lot easier for us to get together. There's so much more. I'd love to ask you about that time period and you and the Obamas. Um, we'll save that for another time. What I want to do in this last part of our conversation is, uh, I don't know how else to say it than just to say it. Like I want to talk for with you for a few minutes about politics and society and where we are as a country. Mm-hmm. It's no secret that the country, you know, made a dramatic shift 
uh, you know, in 2016, as your sister and brother-in-law left the White House and, you know, the new administration came in, um, it's been a very traumatic, you know, four or five years. Um, I'm, I'm young, so I don't want to make any, any, uh, uh, exaggerated claims, but I don't know that we've, it's at least been a long time since we've seen these levels of vitriol and divisiveness in this country, just so, so much um, hatred. And you see all these people that it's not like we're any more, you know, the Trump presidency and Donald Trump specifically didn't make us more racist. He just gave permission to a lot of people to come out and speak their mind, right? right whether right. it's whether it was racism or xenophobia or whatever the case may be. And, you know, this last year, we started this conversation by talking about how the pandemic has allowed us to see so many things in a much more, you know, clearer way. And now in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead, we get to decide what we're gonna do with the things that we now know. And one of the things, you know, we've seen, you know, We've seen, you know, police uh, acts of police brutality against black and brown people many times throughout. I mean, this, this is not new. We're talking decades of this, right? Centuries, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. I mean, the police were founded as slave catchers. So this is centuries old problem, but we started to see it more and more. And we start, you know, now we got these iPhone things. And so people are filming videos. And so obviously this last year has been uh, uh, turmoil-ish and very traumatizing, starting with the the uh, global Black Lives Matter movement that came as a result of, of George Floyd's very public lynching. And it's, it still brings me so much sadness when I think about this past year. I've heard this story of you when you were younger mm -hmm. being accused of stealing a bike. Yes, And, and you didn't absolutely. steal that bike, that was your bike. And right. there were accusers and the police got involved and it wasn't until they brought you home and you know, and your mom got involved. Tell us that story because this is not what I'm, what, what I want to do as you're sharing your thoughts is I want to kind of bring more, more context to who you are and the kinds of experiences that have shaped you, but to also realize that, you know, this past summer when I marched in Black Lives Matter rallies all over the country, when lots of people march all over the country and I marched, you know, here in Nashville, we're holding the same signs that black women held in Selma, Alabama in the 60s. Same right. signs, same signs. Yeah. Which means that we're having the same problems decades later, 60 years later. So talk about that story that I, you know, give more context to that story. And then what I'd love to get into for a few minutes as we wrap up is how, how have you perceived this last year? What's been right. going on? And then we'll get into some solutions. I want to end it on a high note because I know I, I, I don't know, you know, we're just getting to meet each other now, you know, face to face on this screen, but I, I sense that you have, well, if you have anything from your sister, you've got this, you know, when, when they go low, we go high attitude. I feel like when yeah. I, what I know about you is very hopeful. Um, and so tell, talk about that story and then let's, let's get into a little bit uh, of the kind of the nuances of this. Yeah. So the story goes, um, there was a store way back when in Chicago called Goldblatt's and it was a department store that sold clothes. So it was like the, 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 uh, the pre predecessor of something like a Kmart where you get everything there. Sure. Right. And they had these bikes that were on sale 
And I had this beautiful yellow 10 speed bike that my parents saved up their money to buy me and uh, for my birthday. And so I got this brand new 10 speed and I'm riding. And and so I ride over to Rainbow Beach, which is near uh, where we lived, but it was a beach on the south side of Chicago. And I'm riding along. And a police car pulls up beside me and, and, and I am my, my, my mom, my mom, my sister calls me honest John. So I am the last guy who's going to get stopped by the police, right? I am Mr. I help the police. I am the helper kind of kid. I am the good kid. I, I I talk other kids out of being and doing something that'll get them in trouble. Mm, That's, that's mm. me. So this policeman walks up to me and he says, hey, where'd you get that bike? And I'm, of course, so naive. I'm thinking he's admiring my brand new yellow bike. I was like, yo, Goldblatt's. My parents got it for me for my birthday. He was like, yeah. He's like, really, Goldblatt's? He's like, you stole that bike. And I thought he was kidding. I was like, no, no, I didn't steal it. My parents bought me this bike. And, um, and so he wouldn't let it go. And... Uh, and so then I started getting scared because I was like, he was like, well, we're going to we're, we're going to take this bike because it's not yours. And I was like, no, you, look, I tell you what, take me home and I'll prove to you that this is my bike. Now, he thought that I stole the bike because what we found out later is in, in the old bikes, you know, the cables that changed the gears mm-hmm. and used for the brakes, they were these white cables that sure. had a wire inside. Yep. Well, they didn't give you clamps to clamp that against the frame. So we used uh, these twist ties that came with baggies. Baggies are Ziploc bags before Ziploc bags. They didn't zip and lock. You just put yep. stuff in them and then you tie these green and white twist yep. ties around yep. them. We use those green and white twist ties around the frame of the bike to keep the the wires close. Well, everybody who bought those bikes probably did that. And so he thought because I had these green twist ties that I had stolen this bike from someone who reported a bike with green twist ties. So he takes me home. And to make a long story short, my mom completely reams him out because he was a black cop accusing a black kid of stealing a bike before he had any facts. And my mom sent him on his way. And then the next day called his boss at work and said he should come back and apologize to her son for accusing him of stealing the bike. Mm. And the next day he came back and he apologized to me. So that was really one of my few one of my few lifelong interactions with the police, right? You know, other than getting tickets and sort of having to, to I, I've gotten pulled over, I've gotten pulled over for DWB driving while black. That's happened to me a couple of times, yeah. but you know, but that was the only time where I was accused of something. And so, but, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, I, I never, based my relationship with the police on that one event because I cut the dude some slack because he was a brother. You know, I, mm. I cut him some slack. My mom didn't, but I did. And so 
where that brings me today is, you know, I, I think that um, we might have, uh, we, we talked about uncovering things in this pandemic. Yep. We might've uncovered with the uh, Derek Chauvin trial and all of these sort of um, questionable police encounters, we might've uncovered that the police are, that, that a good portion of the police might be people who are anti-Black or anti-people of color. Mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, but what, what I am hopeful for, I'm hoping that it's the 80-20 rule, right? Mm. That 20% of the people out there are jackasses and they're messing it up for the 80% of us who are doing things the right way. Right. So I am hopeful that way. And the and when you and you want to if you want to talk about solutions, I think the young people of our society are going to be our solution because they're the ones who are out there going to all the marches. They're the ones who are out there with their cameras, catching people doing stuff. They're the ones who are going to hold people accountable. And they are the ones, Nick. The young white folks whose dads are doing some of this stuff and don't know uh, uh, about like these entitled business folks, these white supremacist types, all the different, the, the whole gamut, the whole spectrum of sort of white males, they're all having kids who are growing up in a yep. world of color. Yep. And what I've found is that so many of them are, at, are, are, are feeling the social pressure from their own kids. That's what's going to save us. And we just have to keep educating these our young people on how to navigate this with 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 their parents, because I think that's the best that's the best way to work on this is, as as you know, being a parent yourself, your daughter comes to you and she's disappointed in you. You're going to feel a certain way and you're either you're going to fix it or you're just an asshole. Yep. Yeah. You know, the, the parenting thing is really, is really key. I think here, because I feel like in generations past kids didn't feel like they could approach their parents about certain things. Right. One of the benefits of social media and younger kids getting more involved in, um, even just being more outspoken, they're learning how to be like, like fit more in their skin and like speak more boldly. Right. That, Mm -hmm. that wasn't a thing that kids in generations past had to work on. And so now a kid might be, he might be watching some other kid his age, another white kid his age on TikTok calling out the cops, you know, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, supporting, you know, trans rights and LGBTQ rights and doing all that. And they're like, wait, I can, wait, they're my age and they're speaking up. Right. So I've seen a beautiful boldness. I've seen way more young kids I mean, there was a, a few a few weeks ago. There was a it was a young boy, maybe fourteen, fifteen, that turned his dad in. He's a, he he's a white kid with a white cop dad, and he tur- he he turned his dad in. This I'm sorry, this wasn't I'm sorry, this was not a cop. It was his dad was at the his, was at the January six. Uh, uh, oh, at the insurrection, yeah, the, the insurrection, the looting and rioting at our <laughs> capital. Something that you would never have paid me ten years ago to say that would ever happen here. Yeah, and he turned his dad in. Right, I don't think twenty years ago that would have happened, but he That's felt right. like. Hey, I can do this now because I'm going to get the support and the help that I need if I speak up and do this, right? So I am very hopeful. And I'm also, I'm always looking, I'm constantly encouraged by 
you know, after the Derek Chauvin, you know, conviction, it was obviously there was there, there's a reason to, to to celebrate that some semblance of justice is happening, right? Finally, I am not an optimist by nature. Um, I don't think I'm a pessimist either, but I don't I don't I don't lean optimistic most of the time. Mm-hmm. So when that happened, I'm kind of a bleeding heart, like wanna wanna fix stuff. I'm a solutions oriented person, and so I'm thinking. I'm not super happy that in 2021, this took a year. I mean, we had nine minutes and 20 odd seconds of video of, of him, of him killing a man. And it took a year for us to get to trial. And then three weeks of a trial, like this is a done deal. So I wasn't like super happy. And then I, uh, uh, Fawn Weaver, an amazing, you know, black woman and entrepreneur, uh, owns uncle nearest, uh, distillery and a bunch of other things. She's amazing. She posted about it and like celebrating this, this win and I messaged saying, yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm happy, but I'm also like mad that it's taken this long. And she rebuked me in the kindest way. She was just like, whoa, like slow down, like feel the win, like take the win. Yeah. Yeah. Take the win and celebrate it. Stay in this moment. Yes, we've got work to do, but like, just slow down a bit because it is a long game, Craig, isn't it? Yeah, like it's like, a long I, game. I want stuff to happen so quickly. I want. I'm thinking whether it's whether it's police or our prison system or healthcare. We've mentioned a few different problems here that that have really come come to light. Income inequality. These are things that I think let's just fix them. Like, why aren't we fixing them right now? We have the money, resources, all that stuff, and that's just not how it happens. Though we've got to be patient. We've got to remain hopeful, and just be in it for the long game and realize that we might some of these problems might outlive us mm-hmm. and we've got to be okay putting in the work, knowing that we might not see the fruit of our fruits of our labor. I think about the March on Washington with Dr. King. It was hundreds of thousands of black people and a few white people, right? right? This past summer when George Floyd was murdered and the whole country, not just the whole country, the whole world erupted in support for, uh, for, you know, finding a solution for this in, 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 in against police brutality. It was black people. It was white people. It was Latinx people. It was Asian people. It was all kind, young, old, my kids, uh, old people, right? You saw right. people hanging Black Lives Matter flags outside their window. I mean, I can drive around Nashville, which is a pretty white, you know, we're a, we're a blue dot in the middle of a sea of red, right? But there's, I, I can drive around my city, which has a lot of conservative minds and thinking still. There's Black Lives Matter signs in all, like so many yards, right? And so I think I, I, I love your answer there. And I love the hope that that I hear in your voice and the hope that I got from Fawn and many other um, black leaders that I've interacted with over this past year that have just that have rebuked me gently and kindly saying, yo, like, I get it. There's we should we should have figured this shit out by now. This shouldn't be a problem by now. We shouldn't be holding the same signs as they did 60, 70 years ago. But we're making progress. Derek Chauvin, the conviction, that's huge. That's massive that many of his fellow, like his fellow police officers got on the stand and said, no way, that's not what I got into this for. We will not stand by and support that. We will not stay silent. Many more need to speak up, but that's, again, that's progress, right? And so I'm hoping that we can continue to stay hopeful, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and it, it, it's my nature to sort of, be hopeful, but it's also my nature to be strategic. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I, I think I'm strategically hopeful. 
But I really, I can't say enough, as I said before, it's going to be our young people that will eventually save us and, and yeah. eventually enlighten us. And, um, and, and social media is going to be a, a way they do it. It's going to be their ability to gather their ability. They're, they're, they're not as, um, materialistic as, as we think they are, or as we w were, I think they really are focused on quality of life, quality of experiences. It's not like that. They don't want to work. They want to work at something that's important to them. And I yep. think the more they get their legs under them social from a social justice standpoint the more the harder it'll be for people to sort of bum rush our country like like they're trying to do so i feel i feel i feel hopeful uh you can't take your guard down what i will tell you you sound like a basketball coach because you know the one thing about being a basketball coach that's tough is you don't enjoy the wins enough yeah. you know as soon as you win a game, you're thinking about your next game. And when you lose a game, you don't feel good again until you win a game. So neither one of those scenarios do you enjoy the win. So Fawn was right. She was you 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 gotta you gotta enjoy the win and then take what you can, watch some film, and then be prepared for the next opponent. That's so good. And I, I appreciate you saying that. I am constantly trying to grow and work on myself and not be too hard on myself. And that's my like number one project really, this, yeah. th especially this past year when so many things have come to light is I've spent a lot of this year angry, upset. Right. Right. And that's fine at different times. There are times to get angry and upset, but that's not sustainable. Right. I mean, no. I don't know about you, but I want to be in this game you know, the game of life and the game of giving a damn and the game of, you know, making meaningful change for the next 60, 70 years. Right. right. And like till my dying breath. And, and if I, if I'm angry, right, I'm going to age, I'm going to age quicker. Right. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to see those. I, I love that you brought that, the, the comparison to the basketball coach. Like I, yeah, I need to slow down and watch the game film and say, okay, cool. We messed up there, but like we, we won this one and we lost that one. And what, what can we do better? but enjoy enjoying the wins. And, and, and we've seen some really, I think, important strategic wins in society, you know, over the, I mean, just look at, look at even in the political sphere, uh, so many young people running for office. Um, my God, it's, 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 it really is when you step back and not ignore the problems, but just like focus on the wins and the beautiful things that are happening in society. Uh, yeah. You can't help, but feel hopeful. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Craig, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. Um, if your dad was still alive today, I know that he'd be so damn proud of you and Michelle and what your family has contributed to this world. I'm so grateful, not just for what you've already done, but for what you all will continue to do to make this world a better place. Oh, Nick, that's really nice of you. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed our, our time together. It's been a great discussion. Uh, and uh, appreciate your kind words and uh, really looking forward to, to you got to have me back on so we can talk about the other stuff we didn't get to. Oh, I will. We'll do a round two for sure. <laughs>that's it for today my friends thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with craig and me 
To learn more about Craig Robinson and all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. And please go watch Becoming on Netflix. It's so inspiring. It's so good. And pick up a copy of Craig's memoir, A Game of Character. As soon as this podcast is over, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on whichever podcast app you use to listen to the show. It would mean the world to me, and it does so much to build this podcast and to help it get into the ears and lives and hearts of more and more people. Thank you so much for showing up today, friends. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.